This is a really frustrating thing for people to be living through. And oftentimes you feel like you're on a path that no one has tread before you and you're having to learn things yourself. I can promise you people have walked this path before and there are guides out there. And unfortunately, it's just much more difficult to find them than it should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. One of the keys to making ALS a livable disease is making sure that life-extending treatments are made accessible to all people living with the disease. That means more clinical trials and participation with research and more focused research. It also means making sure that promising treatments are made available as quickly as possible. And so it is this week that we are turning our focus to expanded access programs. It's a subject we've touched on here at Connecting ALS over the years, particularly during the advocacy fights to enact the Act for ALS into law, and in the current fights to make sure that bill, which includes provisions to support expanded access programs, is fully funded. My guest this week to walk us through what an expanded access program is, how it works, and the ethical questions surrounding pre-approval access to experimental drugs is Dr. Allison Bateman-House. Dr. Bateman House is an assistant professor in the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone and a member of Langone's working group on compassionate use and pre-approval access. She co-chairs the Interdisciplinary Working Group on Pediatric Gene Therapy and Medical Ethics and serves as the chair of the Compassionate Use Advisory Committee for Infectious Diseases and Neurology and Psychology. She's published and spoken extensively on access to investigational drugs and the history and ethics of using humans as research subjects. Let's hear from her now. Well, Dr. Bateman House, thank you so much for being with us this week. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's an important topic that we're talking about, and I couldn't think of a better person to have on. But before we get into some of the nuts and bolts, I was wondering if you could maybe introduce listeners to the work that is being done at NYU Langone's Working Group on Compassionate Use and Pre-Approval Access. What are some of the questions that you all are grappling with over there? I am a co-founder and co-chair of what we lovingly call COOPA, which you just accurately said was the Compassionate Use and Pre-Approval Access Working Group. And it's a group of volunteers who look at ethical issues surrounding access to investigational medicines. That can be access to these investigational, not yet FDA-approved medicines inside clinical trials or outside of clinical trials uh, through either the right to try or expanded access pathways. And so we, we bring together stakeholders from all different vantage points. We have people from industry, FDA, patient advocacy groups, uh, law, clinicians. Uh, we even bring in a, a journalist because it's important to talk about how these uh, issues are, are portrayed in the media and really try to work together to identify ethical concerns and um, where necessary, do research to learn more. Um, where we think policy needs to change or be created to try to provide policy proposals, and then to do a lot of educational outreach, which is uh, one of the main reasons why I was so excited that you invited me here today. You touched on some important points there, and you know I, I want to f- circle back on a couple terms you used. You talked about right to try. 
you mentioned that umbrella term, maybe compassionate use, talked about expanded access. I, I know, Allison, you co-authored a paper a couple years ago that talked about maybe getting some language clarity around this. And I find that even in my own, when I'm talking about expanded access, pre-approval access. I sometimes use these terms interchangeably, even though they're different things. So talk to me a little bit about why words matter, why labels matter, and the need to kind of all be reading from the same hymnal or singing from the same hymnal, as they say. So the the terminology is a huge issue, and I'm glad you brought it up because it allows me to do a little bit of that sort of educational, um, you know, trying to make sure we are singing from the same hymnal. The historic term for what we're talking about is called compassionate use. The idea is giving a not yet FDA approved product to someone who has no alternative options. They don't qualify for a clinical trial. They have no approved options left to try, and they have a serious or life-threatening medical illness. So the idea is you would be giving this product to them out of compassion with no real sense that it's necessarily going to help. But hopefully the idea and and some data to support that it's more likely to be helpful than harmful, at least. The problem is we can't really use this compassionate use terminology anymore because it is too amorphous, expansive. I don't know what the word is. It's been it's been pulled out of shape. So Mm -hmm. now it's quite frequent that you'll see someone put in a request for compassionate use for an approved medical product that they just can't afford. And that's a very different thing to say, there is a structural obstacle keeping me from getting this approved product, and won't you help me out of a sense of compassion to, this product is not available in any way, shape, or form outside of a clinical trial, but I would like to have access to it, and I don't qualify for the trial. Those are just, you know, like, uh, legally, they're very different things. Regulatorily, they're very different things. And important we're talking about products which in one case have been proven safe and effective for an indication and in the other case have not been proven safe and effective for an indication. So you can't use the same term to talk about both of these. It just is, you know, stretching that term to the extent that it's not useful anymore. So we tend to use the FDA's regulatory language of expanded access. I personally don't like that. I mean, what expanded access is like the least informative term, like expanded access, what does that even mean? But that's the regulatory term, so we use it. And then my preferred term is, is because I like descriptive terminology, non-trial pre-approval access, meaning it's before it's been approved. It may never be approved, we don't know yet, and it's outside of a trial. And then the terminology issue gets even worse once you leave the United States because every country more or less has their own bespoke terminology. So if you're trying to do education or or policy harmonization globally, yeah, you're just in alphabet soup, which is, uh, you, you ask why is it a problem? The problem is, is because Um, You know, when you're trying to educate people about something to have to say, well, first, we need to spend 20 minutes talking about what terminology we're going to talk about. Uh, And especially outside of the United States, many patient advocacy groups are transnational. So you have, you know, European patient groups. And then to say, you know, hello, European patient group, Uh, every single one of your member states has a different terminology. Uh, you know, it just gets cumbersome. And keep in mind, most pharmaceutical companies are global. So even within one company, they're having to grapple with numerous terms. So it's just, it's cumbersome on the educational level, it's cumbersome on the policy level. 
And really, when people are in desperate circumstances, like, you know, severe and life-threatening medical conditions, anything we can do to make things easier to understand and navigate is really what we should be trying to do, not having to deal with silly obstacles such as, you know, incongruent terminology. Absolutely. Well, and that is why we have you on to uh, try and help understand this a little bit better. You talked about, you know, if somebody is seeking access and, and you, you talked about it's under some amorphous terms, but when we're talking about pre-approval access, the expanded access that, that you were just referencing, how does it work? Who determines if it's available? Who determines who gets to access a pre-approved therapy or, or drug or treatment? What are the mechanics of it? From a patient's perspective, what's their next step if they want to try and access something outside that, that hasn't been approved yet? So I'm going to answer that from the American US perspective because it changes yes. from country to country. Sure. Um, the vast majority of pre-approval access happens through clinical trials. And that's the easiest way to get access. So I always encourage people to first look at clinical trials. And uh, expanded access and right to try don't qualify. You're not eligible for them unless you are not eligible for a clinical trial. So your first route should always be a clinical trial. And that in of itself is complicated. Not every clinician knows about what clinical trials are happening. It takes some legwork on the part of the patient, unfortunately, to figure out what their options are. And frequently, I refer patients, I say, find an academic medical center that you're able to access through your insurance or geography, you know, geographic proximity, what have you, and talk to them. They're the ones who are going to know about clinical trials. But the sad thing is, especially in ALS, many patients are not going to be eligible. There are restrictive criteria to trials, and oftentimes patients do not qualify. So that's when you start looking at either of these non-trial pre-approval access pathways, of which there are two. There's expanded access, there's right to try. Right to try is the more restrictive of the two, and it is used very infrequently. So I'm basically not really going to talk about it, except for to say it is only for people who are deemed terminally ill. So that's a very restrictive category. And it's only for a certain class of products. And many companies have opted not to use it. So we're not really going to talk about that. Let's talk about expanded access. Expanded access is more expansive in terms of you can be seriously or life-threateningly ill. You know, it doesn't have that sort of, you know, are you projected to pass away within 12-month deadline? So it's more expansive. It encompasses a larger number of medical products, and many companies are much more willing to use expanded access than right to try. So let's talk about expanded access. And then the question is, you know, who decides? Regardless of what the terminology right to try might lead you to believe, there is no right to use a investigational medical product, a non-FDA approved medical product. Hell, we don't even have the right to use an FDA approved medical product, right? If you can't pay for it, you don't get right. it. And you're but- saying there's no individual right. There's no, there's no individual right. So right. this is actually settled case law that products pre-FDA approval belong to the company developing them. And you may ask for access, but it is up to that company to decide if it wants to give access or not. And it doesn't really have to justify to anyone 
on what grounds it makes those decisions, although I am always encouraging companies to be transparent in in why they make the decisions they do. Sure. So the gatekeeper is the company. And, um, you know, there there are misperceptions out there that, you know, it's FDA or various and sundry other roadblocks. It really comes down to, does the company want to give you access or not? And there are valid reasons for companies to say yes and say no. But for you as a patient, what you need to do is you need to get your request to that company. And you yourself cannot do that. You have to do that through a physician intermediary. So your first step is to find a physician who is willing to do this for you. This is time consuming. It's something that not every physician knows how to do or is willing to do, or perhaps they think the product that you're trying to get access to is not a good choice for you. So first you have to find a willing physician, and then that willing physician has to reach out to the company, you know, say, this is the patient, this is the product that I'm requesting, and then it's up to the company to decide. There are more procedural steps after that, but those are really the two most challenging ones. And then there's a cost component as well. You mentioned that, you know, I don't have a right to access something that has been approved by the FDA short of my ability to pay for it. Talk to me about some of the cost considerations if the company and the physician reach an understanding to provide pre-approval access. So you can look at this through two perspectives. One is that of the patient, and I'll do that first, and then one is that of the company. So for the patient, the federal regulations state that a company cannot profit from an unapproved product. So they cannot make money off of you. But what they can do is they can charge you the amount of money it took them to get that product developed and to you. So if I'm taking a small molecule drug and it cost, you know, $100 to create it and then like another $50 to FedEx it to me, the company can say our direct costs were $150, we want you to pay $150. If this is a much more complicated thing where, you know, it's $10,000, then the company can say, here are direct costs of $10,000. You need to pay it. Companies rarely take advantage of this direct cost option simply because they have a vested interest in people not knowing what their direct cost is. Mm. Once this product comes on the market, if it comes on the market, they're going to be negotiating with insurers and they don't want insurers to know what it costs them to create the drug. So frequently they give the product out for free. Not always, but frequently. So that's the patient side of this. Now keep in mind that that's just the product. So there might be travel to the site, there might be infusion costs, there might be laboratory monitoring or like, you know, doctor fees, et cetera. None of that is going to be covered by insurance most of the time because insurance does not pay for things that are not proven safe and effective. And they have the option to say, this is all a package deal and we're not paying for any of it. So this is frequently where you see people going to like crowdfunding websites and seeking money. It's not because they're having to pay for the product normally. It's because they're having to pay for these ancillary costs. And that, of course, I'm an ethicist. I think about issues about equity and access incessantly. And this is a true barrier to access. So that's the patient side of things. On the company side of things, you know, you cannot do these things 
for free. There is a cost. If you're talking about a small molecule drug that is relatively cheap to produce and that you can ratchet up the volume easily, then typically it's a very cheap thing to do. And you're basically just paying for the person power of having someone who feels the request, reviews them for, you know, does this seem like a good person to receive our product? Who at the receiving end do I ship this to? Can I make sure that they got it? What sort of monitoring do I need to do, et cetera? I mean, there, there are time and labor costs involved even for the most simple of products. What really starts to cut into companies, though, is if you have a more complicated product that takes a lot of money and time and and special manufacturing to create. So the more expensive it is to create, the less likely a company is to give access simply because, you know, remember, they can't make a profit off of it. This is something that they could charge you the direct cost of, but they have incentives not to. So more often than not, they're going to be giving it to you for free. And so when it starts adding up costs to a company, companies are more likely to say no, especially, and this is so important for ALS, if the company is a company that you know does not have products on the market bringing in revenue. If you're a company that's living off of what you manage to get from investors and you only have a limited amount and you need to use that limited amount to bring your product to market, you have very little incentive to say, well, let's carve off X percent of it to go you know, hand out our product for free to patients. Because then how do you turn around and say to investors, we need more money? So, One of the reasons that expanded access has been so, so front and center in the ALS community in recent years has been because of legislative pushes like the Act for ALS, which was signed into law recently. How, whether it's that specific bill or just generally speaking, how has expanded access, I guess, changed in recent years and how is it changing moving forward? Expanded access has gone from being a topic that not very many people know about or talk about and companies don't necessarily think about proactively to something that I think companies are integrating into their drug development process as just another part of the process. doesn't mean that you have to give access, but you have to at least think about what your policies are going to be. And that's across therapeutic areas. I think a lot of that was due to legislation. There was something called the 21st Century Cures Bill. That actually one of the, it was a huge, we called it the Christmas tree bill. Like literally everything that you could throw on it, people threw on it. But one of the myriad provisions in it was that when a company reaches phase two of drug development, they must have a publicly available expanded access policy. So unfortunately, there's no penalty involved. So non-compliance doesn't result in a fee or what have you, which is why it's so important for people to like sort of publicly name and shame companies that don't follow this. But I think it has sort of routinized and made it apparent that companies are, are expected to think about this before they get the first request. So that's really been quite a sea change. I will uh, admit to my conflict of interest here. I was involved in that legislation and I'm very proud of it, but I actually think it is doing what we intended it to do. Other things that have happened is FDA was in the process of streamlining its expanded access paperwork. There was confusion. Some people, particularly people who were not familiar with expanded access, thought they had to fill out the very long and cumbersome paperwork for setting up a clinical trial. 
Mm. Expanded access is not a clinical trial. You should not be filling out, you know, like a a thousand page protocol. Expanded access is treatment. The paperwork for FDA is two pages, but some people were confused about that. So FDA overhauled its website and, and other sort of processes to try to make it more clear about what it is that that intermediary physician needs to do. And there have been various and sundry other initiatives on the part of industry, et cetera, to sort of be more transparent about expanded access. So I think we've seen a lot of energy and enthusiasm in this space in the last 10 years, and and more so than in the decades preceding that. So I'm, I'm really positive about the change that's happening. But that does not mean that we can rest, because I mentioned a minute ago, we still have equity issues, we have access issues, we have clinicians who are the required channel for this who don't know what expanded access is or how to engage with companies to ask for it. So there's still much work to be done. Yeah, it sounds like it. You mentioned clinical trials, that that expanded access is not clinical trials, so you, you shouldn't have to fill out the paperwork. Is any data being collected on patients who are receiving a drug that is both in clinical trials, but that this person is not part of the clinical trial group, but is receiving pre-approval through expanded access. Is that data being used to try and inform the eventual approval process? So by law, FDA requires that the treating physician collect and report back to the company, which then has to report to the FDA, incidents of serious adverse events that happen. So these are sort of unanticipated bad side effects, and they get reported to the FDA. I will mention that that is only a provision for expanded access that does not exist in right to try, which is like a whole nother issue. So this safety reporting is required, and I think it's essential because the whole reason a clinical trial has that sort of clearly defined inclusion and exclusion criteria is typically, not always, but typically related to safety. So once you start giving that investigational product to people outside of who they consider safe to receive it, it's expected that there's going to be side effects that happen. And you want to make sure that those are being reported, particularly if that product does come to market, because it might give us a signal ahead of time of, you know, hey, wait a minute, people who have like compromised renal function or something may have problems with this Mm, drug. But I think what you're talking about mainly is efficacy data. So does it seem to work in these patients outside of the clinical trials? And is that data being collected? That is totally up to the company. There's no regulatory requirement for that to happen. And it's really a mixed bag. Companies are increasingly interested in collecting this, what we call real world data, but not everyone. And, you know, they're, they're trade-offs, right? Like, again, sure. it increases the person power that is needed, et cetera. And it's really quite low value data. Like it is not going to make or break an FDA or a European Medical Association uh, regulatory decision. So the question is, for relatively low value data, how much effort and time and, and whatever are you willing to put into it? That doesn't mean that it's always not good data. Uh, I think in some circumstances, it's really important to collect that data. In other circumstances, not so. And that's a whole complicated question in of itself. It sounds like it's so the the efficacy data, and I, I was I was curious about both, both the safety and the efficacy. And it's it's interesting to hear how they're looked at differently from a rules and regulatory perspective. Uh, but it, it sounds like it's um, 
the efficacy data is somewhat supplemental to the primary data that's going to be coming. At, at best, it's going to be supplemental. It's definitely supplemental. So there was a, a research group in the Netherlands that did a review of both the United States and Europe regulatory approvals for something like the last 10 years to see how often data from expanded access was used. The answer is rarely. But again, mm. this is something that's increasingly happening but it was almost always in a supplemental role. The only time you would see this data being used as as what we call pivotal data, data on which the decision hinges, is for whatever reason, it is impossible to do a clinical trial. So I'll give you an example. There was a drug brought to market for reversing an overdose of a chemotherapeutic drug. You can't overdose people intentionally and then try to reverse it with a drug in a clinical trial. That's just unethical. So what they did is over time when they had accidental overdoses, they tried this one drug protocol. It worked across the board without consequences. And so FDA was willing to grant a drug approval based on, you know, a series of case histories of this happening, but it was not a clinical trial. So it's going to be very exceptional cases in which expanded access is going to provide that pivotal data. That's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Bateman House, those are all the questions that I had for you today. But before I let you go about the important work that you do, uh, was there anything else you wanted to share with listeners about this topic? I wanted to let people know that this is a really frustrating thing for people to be living through. And oftentimes you feel like you're on a path that no one has tread before you and you're having to learn things yourself. I can promise you people have walked this path before and there are guides out there. And unfortunately, it's just much more difficult to find them than it should be. So they should feel free to reach out to me. They should feel free to reach out to the Compassionate Use and Pre-Approval Access Working Group at NYU. But there are also uh, patient advocacy organizations out there, the ALS Association, I am ALS, that really know this stuff backwards and forwards and, and let them try to hold your hand through this as opposed to you having to navigate it on your own. It's going to be challenging one way or another, but let's try to make it as less challenging as opposed to more challenging as possible. That sounds great. And we will absolutely share all of those resources, links to those resources in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Bateman House, thanks so much for being with us this week. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I want to thank my guest this week, Dr. Allison Bateman House. Be sure to check out the show notes for resources that can help you navigate the world of pre-approval access to experimental drugs and to clinical trials. If you like this week's episode, share it with a friend. And while you're at it, please find time to rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.